Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome back uh, to Gospel in the City. This is our last session before we take a, a two-week break for Easter. Talk a little bit more about that um, at the end. This is also the last of our series looking at highlights from the life of Joseph. And we've been particularly selecting points in Joseph's life where we see him kind of as a worker, uh, working in Potiphar's household, uh, working as the prime minister of Egypt and that kind of thing. Uh, today, though, we're coming to the end of the story pretty much. And we're looking at, as Joseph kind of takes a, a whole look at his whole life, and we're kind of seeing what was going on behind the scenes, if you like. Um, so Christoph's back uh, to lead us through this today. Uh, so it's Genesis chapter 50. You can see that there on your handout. Um, uh, good. Everyone got a handout? Great. Let me, uh, let me read that passage, and then I'll pray and invite Christoph up. Uh, to speak to us. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to Joseph in Egypt, Joseph wept. His brothers then came to Egypt and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also, the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry up my bones from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Amen. Well, can I lead us in a prayer as we come to look at God's word? Uh, Father God, thank you for um, the places that you've put us uh, so far this week. And thank you for bringing us here this lunchtime. Uh, thank you for the food and the drink that you've provided today. And thank you for this chance to uh, read your word together, to hear from you, and to have it opened up before us. Uh, so we pray that you'll help us to listen today as we hear your word being explained. And we pray that you would speak to us and show us what it is uh, to live for you and what you're doing in our world and in our lives. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Guys, it's great to see you. Um, it's nice coming back twice in, in quick succession, so I feel very much at home here at Gospel in the City. This is brilliant, isn't it? It's not often I get to speak with a blues soundtrack in, in the background. I, I think there's something here we need to take for our churches. It, it's, it, it's good. Sam's already said, finishing a Joseph series, um, we've deliberately uh, only 
taken highlights out of the life of Joseph. Um, we preached it recently in church, and I think it ran to 12 or 13 different talks rather than just the four that we're taking. So we have Gospel in the City. We've focused on what we thought were very workplace-related passages of Scripture, parts of Joseph's life. I'm going to say that probably this passage we're looking at today is a little bit less like that. So it's going to address you probably a little bit less immediately as a worker, but very deeply as a human being. Sometimes on a Wednesday lunchtime, you've forgotten that you're a human being because you're a worker. But we, I hope, can all agree that we're something more than people who sit at desks and tap keyboards, that uh, there are other things that are important to us, other parts of who we are. These verses at the end of Genesis, we catch Joseph looking in a couple of directions. At the very end of Genesis, he's actually looking forwards in, in the final paragraph. We don't have time today to look in both directions with Joseph, so we're only going to do, do the backwards look. So the incident that gives rise to the, the backwards look into his life is that part there, verses 15 to 21. And it's a story of forgiveness. But before it's a story of forgiveness, it's a story of guilt. Uh, there's been a, a debate raging. Um, I, I'm not much of an expert in, in trends in psychology, but I, even with a, a very minimal grasp, I think I can understand. Uh, there's been a trend in modern psychology to move people away from feelings of guilt. The idea is that guilt's harmful, that it's certainly unnecessary, possibly even harmful. It's been brought about by overly moralistic uh, teaching in some community that you've been a part of. And the sooner you get beyond that and leave it all behind, the better. So Sigmund Freud would have been one of the first people articulating this kind of a view. And his views are more, more prevalent in our culture than we probably realize. I saw this spelled out for me. I was watching a, weekend, uh, watching a movie last weekend. Um, not a very well-known film, so I'm, I'm going to say Peter Weir's Fearless, starring Jeff Bridges, 1993. No? Brilliant film. If you're looking for a, a recommendation. Um, Jeff Bridges plays this character who survived a plane crash. Um, and at one point in the movie, he and a psychiatrist who's been appointed by the airline, uh, this psychiatrist has been appointed by the airline to go and visit people who've suffered in the crash to try and, uh, I suppose, mitigate the insurance claims that are coming against this airline for this crash. So the Jeff Bridges character and the psychiatrist, they go together to visit a woman who's really been struggling with feelings of guilt uh, because during that air, air crash, she'd been holding her baby, she dropped her baby, and her baby died. Uh, naturally, a, a very traumatic thing to experience. But as they go to visit that woman, the psychiatrist offers this analysis of the woman's distress. Very Catholic, he says, very old world, very full of guilt and shame. That's a modern psychiatrist talking about the trouble that this woman feels in her head and her heart. 
what are you talking about, man? Jeff Bridges says, I'm full of guilt and shame. How's that an old world problem? So this is in the 1990s, a movie director saying, guilt and shame are still a real thing. We can't just set them aside. So in this passage, we, we deal with um, questions of guilt. Uh, I want to try, and, and the outline will help you if you want to follow as I'm speaking. I want to talk about three things, the reality of guilt, the results of guilt, and its cure. So the reality of guilt, there's something very disappointing, I think, about this part in the Genesis narrative. Verse 15, the reaction of Joseph's brothers when their dad, Jacob, dies. They're asking themselves, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did him? So this only makes sense if we keep the whole of the Joseph story before us. So you'll remember Joseph was uh, sold, trafficked into slavery by his brothers when he was a teenager. If you, if you think of the impact of that, they've cut him off from his family for life. They've cut him off from pretty much every hope and aspiration and every opportunity that he as a young man might have had. They've ruined his life. But the grown-up Joseph, the prime minister of Egypt, has already had a chance to to meet up with his grown-up brothers and he has forgiven them. Chapter 45 is the place where you can read about that in scripture, a very powerful passage. Joseph says at one point, do not be distressed and be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. It was not you who sent me here, but God. So there's no doubt Joseph has forgiven his brothers. At one point, he says a beautiful thing to them. He simply says, I am Joseph, come close. So he's forgiven them, he's embraced them. But here they are, 17 years later, and they're worried about Joseph and what's going to happen now that Jacob's died. There's something troubling them. It's their own feelings of guilt, which they've tried to suppress, which they've tried to sweep under the carpet, which they've tried to keep way far from the surface. But they feel guilty, I'm imagining, because what they did was a terrible thing. It really was. I described it there. They treated their brother much as if they, you know, if they'd killed him, they wouldn't have done much different. They ended his every hope, his every opportunity, and they knew that. And although they had managed to, to conceal that guilt, to, to sit on it for years and years and years, they hadn't dealt with it properly. No forgiveness received, no spiritual healing for them. So Freud's wrong. Not all guilt is misplaced. And if we don't learn how to, to recognize it, to see it, to accept it, and then deal with it. We're going to be in trouble just like these brothers are. We've thought about the reality of guilt. What, what are the results? Um, unresolved guilt can affect us in, in a number of different ways. Um, sometimes it brings a person into depression. Sometimes it, it makes them angry and aggressive. 
sometimes we slide into a sort of a perfectionism. So you have this, you're, you're carrying this guilt. So you say to yourself, I'm going to try now to be perfect, to, to prove that I really am a good guy after all. Or you, 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 you slide into some sort of self-deprecation. Anybody you're talking to, you say, oh, I'm terrible. I'm terrible. You know, I really am terrible. And you say that in the hope that they'll say, do you know, you're not that bad, and start to lift you back up again. Joseph's brothers, their guilt resulted in fear, and we've already noticed that in the narrative. They've been forgiven, but they're terrified. So they come up with this plot. They send a messenger to Joseph uh, to pass on Jacob's deathbed message. I I think this is a really skillfully written part of the narrative because we don't know if their message is true. Did Jacob ever say that? We don't know. I don't mind saying. It feels to me like a spoof. Feels to me like they made it up. Um, no, No commentator can tell you definitively one way or the other. The message from Jacob, supposedly, I ask you to forgive these sins and wrongs that they have committed in treating you so badly. When Jacob hears, or Joseph hears this message, he breaks down and he weeps. And why is that? Because he knows that his whole adult life with these brothers has been built on an untrusting foundation. They've never really trusted him. This, this untrust hasn't emerged now that Jacob's died. It's always been there. Jacob's death has just brought it to the surface. He's realized, my brothers and I aren't together the way I'd hoped we are. Folks, in this uh, short series, we haven't had time to dwell on everything that we could have said about Joseph. Uh, One of the things that you'll notice if you ever read the whole Joseph narrative is how at certain points along the way, he just is a brilliant picture of Jesus. He, He sort of foreshadows Jesus, you know, Centuries before Christ ever came, we have this figure who, as we read scripture backwards, we can see he, he shows us so much of who Jesus is. So, so these brothers, despite all they had done to him, he forgives them. Despite their violence against him, he calls them close and he embraces them. I, I just wonder if at this moment when, when Joseph weeps, is... Can we see Jesus behind that? Surely it breaks the heart of Jesus when people whom he's given his life for don't trust him and don't respond to his love. Surely it does. If his heart breaks for those people who have never responded to him in any particular way, I'm going to imagine that his heart breaks too for those who have trusted him at some moment, who've received forgiveness, but still walk around 17 and 27 and 37 and whatever number of years later carrying their guilt. They know they've been forgiven and yet they just allow this stuff to to continue to exist between them and God. Folks, I think it's a hard thing 
to trust ourselves entirely to God with all of our lives, all of the time. The stuff we'd rather keep hidden than under the surface. To fully and finally say, there it is. I'm going to try and live it all before you, under your grace, before the cross. Not easy. Hard for us to believe that God really, really wants the very, very best for us. We imagine that he, he gives us so much, but he holds the rest back. That his grace has limits, at least for the likes of us. Folks, we're heading into that Easter season. I think it's a possibly the best time of the year just to, to reflect on our own walk with God or posture before him and to say, you know, what, what would give joy to Jesus this Christmas season? We're talking about the weeping. What, what's, what, what would bring Jesus joy? Well, a, a full trust. You know? Whatever guilt we are still carrying that we somehow just say that's it. Isn't it uh, I read Pilgrim's Progress about a year ago isn't there that moment where Christian has his burden? He's been carrying it around. He has his burden released from him and it tumbles down and rolls down a hill away. That's what we need. This guilt that we're carrying to go. We've talked about the reality of guilt. We've talked about the results of guilt. How can we be free from our guilt? I, I preached this passage a few months ago at Kirkpatrick, and rather than being deep into the Lent season, we were deep into the Advent season. So it was a couple of weeks before Christmas. So I, I pointed the congregation to a, a, an Advent hymn of sorts. It, it's a pop song uh, written by Deacon Blue, the, the Scottish group. You need to be a certain age to, to remember Deacon Blue in their, their prime. Ricky Ross is a brilliant songwriter and somebody who knows the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in this song, Bethlehem Begins, he's asking us to consider how we're going to deal with our guilt. Opening verse, tell me once, tell me twice, how it is that we begin again. Do we start by clearing up the mess or just forgetting? The way some people try to kid, you'd think we're better off pretending how far we can go without ever working out the ending. And the chorus then tells us the way to the only place where we can deal with our guilt. He says, got to go back, got to go back to Bethlehem to begin again. How do we begin again? How do we clear up the mess? It's not by forgetting or pretending but by confronting our own sinfulness and receiving God's forgiveness. How can we be free from our guilt? Got to go back to Bethlehem. To the kid born there to become the man who goes to Jerusalem to a cross and dies for my sin and yours. When the brothers finally come before Joseph, they're, they're all in a state. They're worried about what he's going to do to them. And he receives them warmly. Do not be afraid. People think the Bible's full of rules and commands. It, it has some commands in it. That's the most common one. 
Don't be afraid. That's what God says to us more often than anything else in the whole of Scripture. But it's interesting what Joseph does. He doesn't ignore the past, and that's what we're talking about here today. He speaks of their ill treatment of him all those years ago when they kidnapped him, when they sold him into slavery. And he says to them, you intended to harm me. Fellas, you really did mistreat me. And you meant to. It wasn't by accident. Your sin against me was real and I haven't forgotten it. And then, not for the first time in this passage, Joseph uses, uh, or not for the only time, he uses two tiny but huge gospel words. You intended to harm me, but God. You intended to harm me, but God meant it for good. It was awful. What you did to me was terrible, but God meant it for good. You see, I don't know. Maybe you're sitting on some sin and you think the sin you're sitting on is just too big. And here we see in this narrative, we see it so often throughout Scripture, there's no sin big enough that God's grace can't cover it, that his forgiveness can't wash it clean. God takes the worst of our circumstances and he, he, he uses them to work his glorious salvation. Folks, as we we move towards Easter, I I hope you can see here a final glorious foreshadowing of of Jesus. He was ill-treated, that lash on his back and the thorns on his head, the spit on his cheek, the bruises on his face, the nails in his hands and the spear in his side. Not only the physical suffering, the the mockery of the rulers, the betrayal of his friends, the desertion of his disciples. Jesus suffered all this human sin. If you think about it for a second, folks, um, is there anything worse we can do than to hate and to kill the Son of God? What are you sitting on that's bigger than that? To hate and to kill the Son of God. We've already done that. Mel Gibson got it right in his movie, The Passion of the Christ. Um, Maybe you know this. When it came to the moment in the movie where they were depicting the crucifixion of Jesus, when the camera zoomed in, on the hands that would would nail, drive a nail through the wrist of Jesus, drive him to that cross. Mel Gibson, the director at that point, stepped in and he said, let it be my hands carrying the nails, nailing Christ to the cross. Gibson said that because he knew that he had killed Jesus. And he knows that I have. And and you have to. We all together intended to harm him. But God, <laughs> he meant it for good. So you, you, 
you have God before you, you take him and you nail him to a cross and he uses that very act, it becomes the material of our redemption. The suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross becomes the moment where God wins his victory over sin and death and offers each one of us new life. You intended to harm me, but God meant it for good. Joseph is speaking those words. Jesus Christ could easily have spoken them from the cross. Friends, the cross teaches us that whatever our sin is that we're sitting on, whatever the guilt is that we've been carrying forever long, we've been carrying it. Our sinfulness is the very stuff out of which he loves to work his salvation. So, our guilt is real. We are struggling with the result of it. What are we going to do with our guilt this Easter season? Got to go back. Got to go back to Bethlehem and on to Jerusalem to begin again. Got to come to the cross of Jesus Christ Acknowledge our sin, remember that he was crushed for us, and remember that it was for our sins that he died. But then listen to him as he speaks, and he says, you intended to harm me, but God meant it for good. For what is now being done, the saving of many lives, huh? the saving of many lives. Come to him, listen to him as he says. Do not be afraid. I am Jesus. Come close. Folks, let me pray a very brief prayer and then we'll see what we're going to do after that. Father God, um, in our most honest and most alert moments we know what it is to carry guilt and shame thank you for this glorious message of the cross that in the death of Jesus you rehabilitate us in the most profound way you make us fit for you and also fit to live happy and healthy lives for your glory with your strength. Lord, I pray for each one of us that we would we'd have the joy of knowing all of that this Easter season. Lord, we pray even for the opportunities to invite others to find this forgiveness, this grace, this new life in Jesus too. Amen. Christoph, thank you very much. If you want to stay up, and Stephen, do you want to come up as well? Um, we've got just a couple now. So I thought just at the end of this series, because I know not all of us can get to every single one of these talks, um, and they are available on the website if you want to catch up on them over Easter. But I just thought I'd ask both of you, um, just chatting to both of you, 
I've got the sense that you, both of you were quite impacted by, by doing this series in, in, in Joseph, both, both just now and, and, and in Kirkpatrick. So I wanted to kind of ask you just maybe one thing that you personally have taken away from, from the life of Joseph or from this material in, in Genesis. So maybe start with Stephen. Um, I suppose other than um, the bits that I've talked about, which are the bits that, that interestingly enough, the, the bits that I ended up preaching on in Kirkpatrick were the bits that, that jumped out at me most anyway. Um, that stuff just about how God was God was with Joseph and people could see it. Um, I suppose the, the other part of the Joseph story that, that really kind of has struck me um, is actually a bit that we, we haven't looked at and is a bit that doesn't really actually involve Joseph. Um, it's the, the chapter before the one that Christoph was talking about there, chapter 49. And if you read chapter 49, it's, it's Jacob on his deathbed and he is blessing. He, he gathers the sons around him and he blesses them. Um, really, he, he speaks on behalf of God at that point. And he, he essentially outlines the, the next 1800 years of history. He, he, he explains what's going to happen to all of these tribes when they enter the land. And he removes the, the head of the household from Reuben, who has, who has uh, slept with one of Jacob's uh, wives and has betrayed him, and, and he gives it to Judah, another son who has messed up, but who has since then seeked forgiveness. And, and he's the one who, um, he's the one who threw, he's the one who wanted to sell Joseph into slavery in the first place, and um, did other things with, with Tamar that um, you can read about in chapter 38. But after that, he turns himself around. He realizes his mistakes, and he's the one who, who gives himself. He's the one who tries to, to sacrifice himself to save Benjamin. He's the one who says, no, Joseph, take me and, and release Benjamin. And, and that little moment as well is a little, a little Christ-like moment of Judah sacrificing himself to save another. Um, and so he's given the head of the household, and there's this beautiful, in chapter 49, there's this beautiful little moment that is just this pitless little picture of, of Christ um, 1800 years before before Jesus ever comes along, this this picture, the lion of that's where the lion of Judah comes from, um, the one whose scepter will never be taken from him until until that moment of fulfillment um, when he comes as king. So that chapter and just what it says and, and how then you can trace it through the rest of the rest of the Bible. It's really the contents page for what's going to happen next. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that's that's something that really jumped yeah. out at me. Great, thank you, Stephen. And Christoph, anything? Yeah. Um, one thing that struck me about the, the Joseph series this time around was um, coming back to scripture, how your understanding of it can grow and how the, the themes can... Uh, so, so, for example, if somebody had asked me a few years ago, what, what's the life of Joseph? What's the best thing the life of Joseph can teach us? There's a, a repeated phrase in sort of the early chapters of the Joseph narrative where it talks about God was with him. And it's usually used at the very moments when you, you think God isn't with him because he's been sold into slavery or he's ended up in prison. So what I would have taken from that or maybe even preached was quite pastoral. You'd say something like, well, despite your circumstances, you know, your job's awful or you're struggling in your relationships, don't doubt that God is with you. And what a brilliant thing to be able to say. And, and we did say that when we preached that series uh, just a few months ago. But what I, what I suppose I discovered um, looking again was that, uh, and Stephen's already mentioned this, the, the God being with Joseph then, there were things that flowed out of that that I hadn't noticed so much. 
this idea God is with you and other people see it. So you're working for Potiphar, he promotes you to run his household. You're in prison, the guy invites you to run the prison. You're released from prison into Pharaoh's court and Pharaoh says, why don't you run Egypt? And, and I got a chance to talk about some of that, about um, what a wonderful thing it would be if the Spirit of God was so evident in our lives that in the public sphere people were saying, we want guys like this leading us, wouldn't that be, be amazing? So God is with us, yes, he wants people to see it. And, and he might raise us up for influence. I, I didn't get a chance to develop that across scripture, but um, there are a number of examples. I suppose Daniel's one of the go-to ones where God takes takes a guy and raises him to, to problems. So that was interesting. Well, guys, just on behalf of everyone here, thank you very much for the both, I suppose, the encouragement and the comfort you've you provided to us uh, from this series. So, um, something hopefully for us to take away into our Easter break: a reminder of the forgiveness that God brings, and also His His control over everything and His able, ability to use all these circumstances, even how me- however messy they appear. So, thank you very much to both of you. And just to say, yeah, two-week break. Uh, we'll be restarting on the first of May, so you can kind of put that in your mental calendar. First of May. Uh, but there'll be emails to follow to, to tell you exactly what's going on. So have a great Easter, happy Easter, and God bless you.